Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, episode 394. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton. I'm so happy to have you here, and I'm also thrilled to introduce our guest, Rena Shin. Rena is the owner and medical director of Adonis Cosmetic Surgery, and just get ready for an awesome conversation, because Rena was previously a chief of surgery at a hospital, and then she'll share more of her story, but opened up a cosmetic surgery practice, she discovered that a lot of patients needed the interpersonal work rather than just not, they didn't even need the cosmetic surgery, right? They just needed to work on themselves. And this is something that you've discovered through your own journey, right? Right. Well, welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I've been looking forward to being on your show and I'm so glad that we finally got together. I am so happy as well. I want you to share your story. Well, actually, before you jump in, I just want to share with you really fast that when Mm -hmm. I was in high school, I had braces for seven years. Mm -hmm. And the final step that the orthodontist wanted me to do was get maxiofacial surgery. Listeners who don't know what that means, it's they wanted me to break my jaw and move it forward so that it looked like, you know, my teeth were all lined up and everything. However, when I went to the surgeon for the consultation, he looked at me and he said, well, while we're fixing your jaw, we can fix your nose too. (sighs) And I, up until that point, and I think I was 16 (laughs) or 17, I didn't even realize that there was anything strange with my nose. So I became really Mm self-conscious and it sort of sent me in a downward spiral. And it was just sort of said, oh, the downward spiral moved back up again. Like I, <laughs> I never got the jaw surgery and I never did anything mm-hmm. to my nose. But I find it unfortunate that a lot of people think that what they need to get their life on track is surgery. So I can't wait until we dig into that. Bef- right. Before we get there, mm-hmm. I'm sort of all over the place today. But before <laughs> we get there, I would love if you would share your journey with the listeners. Okay. Well, I am from Korea. So I was born and raised in Korea until I was 17 and came here when I was 18. And there's an interesting story there because my mother saved her life's uh, saving after my father died when I was 12 with the hope of coming to America because her sister was living here for a long time and she invited in. Back then, it took almost 10 years to come. And when we came, we found out that all the money that she has saved all that time was completely gone by her brother-in-law, my uncle, who found the money <laughs> was there and decided to do a sandwich shop. And the reason was because he liked sandwich. He didn't know anything about running a shop. So it was completely gone. And so my mother had to go back to Korea right away to make some money because she didn't speak enough English to make a living here. And so there was in high school, I was working full time and going to school and was taking care of two younger brothers, as well as my 80 year old grandmother. And some person actually asked me that, were you ever discriminated because of your ethnicity? Because we went to Florida and at that time there weren't any Asians at all. 
And I was trying to recall if I was discriminated, but I couldn't because I was so busy doing so many things where people were discriminating or making a derogatory remarks. I just don't remember. And I did manage to go to Harvard in two years, and then I went on to becoming a surgeon. And I was general surgeon and trauma surgeon, and I became a chief of surgery at a state hospital. And I expected to uh, retire from that position because, you know, that was very well-established hospital. I never expected that to fold. But in 2008, with the economic crisis that we had, the hospital did fold. And so I had to decide whether to go back to my old job of being a surgeon and trauma surgeon or do something else. But at the time, my youngest was only one year old, and I just could not stomach the idea that he will grow up without ever seeing his mother if I have had come back to surgery. Because we work sometimes like over 100 hours per week and every other night to every third night call. That's a really tough situation. So I decided to open up this cosmetic surgery. And it was because I was doing a cosmetic work on a side and the, my nurses and everybody was urging me like, well, you're so busy and we have to wait for uh, seeing you. Why don't you do that as a full-time job? So I did. And during that transition, I noticed something really interesting. You know, as a general surgeon, I take everybody's word at face value, right? They come in and say, oh, it hurts here. And, you know, I say, oh, that looks like an appendix. I take it out. And people are very happy. And I don't have to ever guess, like, oh, do they really hurt there or anything like that? But in cosmetic surgery, interesting thing is that people will come in and ask me something. You know, I want my face to be different, get the fillers or to have the bigger breast or whatever. But quite often, what they're not saying behind that request is not that they really wanted to have a bigger boobs or they have a different face, but they were just cheated on or their husband or boyfriend left for a younger person and they just don't feel desirable anymore or feel beautiful anymore. And so all they want is just somebody to tell them that they're still beautiful and that they're still desirable and worthy. And without having understood that first, I was just puzzled. They would ask me to do something like, you know, having fillers on the face or breast. And I deliver that and anybody can see from before and after picture that it is better looking results. But they would tell me, I'm not so sure if I see any result, a difference or I don't feel good or I don't think I look pretty yet. So at that time, I realized, wow, this is crazy. <laughs> and I stumbled onto a book by Dr. Maxwell Maltz in 1960 called Psychocybernetics. And I was shocked to find out that he, who was also a plastic surgeon, cosmetic surgeon, was describing the same thing, that he realized that some people has the set idea that he coined self-image. Until then, self-image wasn't a term that anybody used. And that unless we change that self-image that's inside, anything he did on the outside, making a better looking nose or whatever, didn't really make any difference because they will still see that internal self-image. So I started to educate my patients about what they should do with their desire for improving their outlook. And quite often, I would just tell them to lay it off, especially people who come in who just got divorced or who just did some kind of a breakup and wants to do big operation. I usually discourage them to 
postpone this surgery for at least six months for them to settle down and see if that's what they really want. What do they say when you encourage them to wait? At first, if I don't delve into the reason why I request that, they get very upset <laughs> because like, what do you mean I came here to do this thing for you? And I usually say, you are going through some tremendous changes in your brain. There's neurotransmitters and all that that's firing up. Despite the fact you seem to be handling this situation well, this is just bodily reaction that you're going through. So it's best for you to wait. And this is true, that the, your immune system will improve and you will have much better results if you allow your body to rest and get back into the more normalized state. Mm. I really appreciate that because there's so many entrepreneurs out there who just want the money, right? I've seen that they'll take on clients <laughs> who aren't necessarily I ideal for them or won't really benefit from the products that they are buying. But when we can give people the reason why it's not the best option for them, or maybe not the best option right now, they're so much more appreciative in the end, but the explanation really needs to be in place. But I love the fact that you've recognized the deeper root, the cause, and you're not just looking at symptoms, which is, I'm sure you've seen it so much in the medical industry. The symptoms are being treated, but the cause is not. Right. So I often give the other uh, cosmetic surgeons and plastic surgeons advices on how to manage their practice. And just like any good business, you don't want to have a whole bunch of people who are going to come in and get a one single procedure or buy one product and go away because the acquisition cost is going to be a lot for you to constantly having to have new patients come in. It's much better for you to have a cultivated, a small group of people who's going to trust you and come back again and again. So even if you may lose few people because you're refusing to do the procedure they're asking you to do, once you convince them that you're a caring person and that you have their interest in your heart, they'll come back again and again and they'll introduce you to other people and you will have a truly good word of mouth referrals. Otherwise, if you take the wrong money, you get sued no matter how well your results may be, because you didn't deliver exactly what they asked, because they may have said that they wanted a breast augmentation, but you didn't address the fact that they needed to feel desirable and beautiful and self-worthy. So I tell them it's much better investment for them to learn to recognize whether some people should benefit from their procedures or not and advise them accordingly. That's much better than for them to do uh, lots of procedures and collect money up front and get sued on the back. Then it'll be a lot worse off in that situation. Oh, absolutely. How do you feel about all the celebrities that we see in People magazine or who we see who have had, you know, this surgery and that? Do you think it, they are facing the same struggle, that it's the inward lack of it confidence? Is. Even though right. they're on the big screen and making millions of dollars a year <laughs> right. or a movie or whatever, it's the inner yeah. lack of confidence. If you look at the history of all the celebrities who's been having drug issues or the addiction issues and sometimes commit suicide and all that, it's really hard environment they're in. They're on the spot all the time and they have to put up this facade 
that they may or may not be reflecting who they are. And so all of them are under far, far greater stress to question their self-worth and all. And now there's these perceived to be easy fix. And just like that they used to go to easy fix of cigarettes and alcohol, they're now going to the easy fix of the fillers and botoxes. And unfortunately, there's too many people who are doing the cosmetic work, some of them are not physicians at all. You know, these are the estheticians or nurses or sometimes not even that who are offering procedures. And we don't have the nationwide regulations yet about cosmetic procedures as such. The general public is really at their own risk of getting things done and apparently being a celebrity or having lots of money does not protect them from these people who are offering things inappropriately or not with for expertise. I did not realize that. I would have assumed that there were really stringent regulations, but the more that I see out there, there have been little Hence, I mean, we see people who get implants and then all of a sudden there's something leaking into their body. Right. Hmm. Yeah, the medical field had the bad experience of a snake oil sellers and the all sorts of a quackery at the turn of the century. So they have gone through a rigorous practice of certifying people and regulating people and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to cosmetic field, or aesthetic field is sort of popped up and has grown so fast that we really don't have any regulating body or authority who's overseeing that. As such, almost anybody can do it. I mean, podiatrists is doing a Botox and fillers on the face, or I don't want to Wait, single out any. <laughs> you just said podiatrist. <laughs> right. Are you someone, really? Someone who's specializing thing on feet, the foot, right? right? And so you say, oh, where did you get the uh, anatomy and physiology of the face or other parts of body? And worse yet, even the non-physicians can go around and inject in certain states. So we're really lacking thorough regulation on that aspect. And that's why we're seeing a lot of complications. I mean, unless I was stuck on the highway, right, and had no other option, I wouldn't want a dentist delivering my babies. <laughs> So why would you want a podiatrist injecting stuff into your face? Wow. Right. So that's the unfortunate part. And the, anybody who's seeking cosmetic or aesthetic procedures do have to do their own due diligence to find out that a person who's offering, it doesn't have to be specific specialty because we don't have any specific specialty that is actually aesthetic. Even plastic surgery, people think plastic is equating to the aesthetic surgery, but it is not. By definition, plastic surgery and reconstructive surgery is the remodeling or retransposing the uh, soft tissues or different parts of body to having new corrections and things like that. There's a subset of the Plastic Surgery Society called the Aesthetic Plastic Society. And also there's Cosmetic Society called AACS, American Academy of Cosmetic Surgery. They've been around 35, 40 years. And so those are the ones that's dedicated to the aesthetic work. But most of the regular specialty general surgeon, ENT, or maxillary, or plastic, are not, by definition, aesthetically trained. Wow. Well, thank you for the 
eye-opening information on that. Can we back up for a moment? I want to back up to when you were chief surgeon. Mm -hmm. Was there any part of working so many hours a week that was worth it? Well, the unfortunate thing is nowadays, in fact, after 1998, I think, or 99, that's when the 80-hour work rule came in for the residents so that it's possible for them to have some life. Back then, when I was in training, people were doing 100 to 120 hours per week. (laughs) So we're talking about not many hours left for your personal life. So if you're looking for a lifestyle itself, of course, it wasn't really worth it. That's why I was the only girl in 30 students who were going to general surgery from my medical school. And back then, only about 11 to 12 percent of the entire surgeons were female because the surgery residency falls right around the reproductive time. So any female who want to have family just could not choose that route. It has improved greatly, but Originally, I didn't think that I was, I was going to have children. That's why I have my children fairly late. I wasn't even married until I, I got out of residency. So while I was the chief of surgery, that part was a little easier because before that, I was general surgeon and trauma surgeon, and that was just blur of my life because I was working so many hours. And yet at the same time, and that's the, my chosen field, And there's great satisfaction of uh, seeing people improve and their lives saved and knowing that my own expertise, using my own hands and using my knowledge are saving people's lives or saving them from their own suffering. That was worth it. I can definitely see that. It shocks me, though, that it, it wasn't until 1998 that there was the 80 hour rule. I live just off of Interstate 75 here in America for listeners who are listening abroad and the interstates in the United States, the highways, when they go from one state to another have numbers and I-75 goes from Detroit all the way down to Florida. So there are truckers constantly going down the highway and I know they have a eight hour rule that they're supposed to follow. They can drive for eight hours and then they have to pull over and sleep and eat and whatever else they do. And that's for the safety of other drivers on the road. But it just blows my mind that surgeons or any type of medical professional in residency could be expected to work that many hours. I mean, even 80 to me still sounds like a lot just because I know what sleep deprivation does. (laughs) Right. So, yes, it's slow but definite positive um, direction that our medical field is having, especially surgical field. Because back then, I guess, they don't have enough residents or it's, it might be just boot camp type of uh, tradition or they may f- felt that they, they had to break the surgeons to become a surgeon. But mm-hmm. yeah, it was extremely inhumane working situation. Quite often, I would take every other night call, which means... I had to work 36 hours straight without sleeping and go home and crash for about six, seven hours sleep and then get up and go back to the hospital. I mean, you understand the term resident meant that you're living in the hospital. That's where that residency comes from. Hmm. You didn't have your own house or anywhere else. Once you start the residency, you were living in the hospital and that hospital was your residency. That's where the term residency comes from. And so that's the unfortunate heritage we have about the surgical training as well as other physicians training. 
And now I think they're slowly waking up to the fact that this kind of abusive situation creates the stressed out doctors who are being burned out. And also there's a lot of the physician suicide that's recently has become spotlighted because when you're working that much and you're sleep deprived and have and you're in a field that's extremely emotionally charged you're dealing with the people who are suffering or having terminal disease or dying in front of you and to be the provider empathetic giver to these people when you are being abused it's just a prescription for disastrous failure Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine being a doctor. I mean, taking our three littles to just the pediatrician for their immunizations. I mean, my husband can't do it because he can't stand watching them get shots. (laughs) He knows it has to be done and he knows why. Mm -hmm. Well, it has to be done for us because the daycare and the schools want it. But I personally... If listeners, if you don't agree in immunizations, then we'll just have to agree to disagree. Anyway, he can't stand seeing the shots and he actually gets enraged to see the nurses breaking them. Not because he doesn't understand, but he doesn't want to see his babies getting hurt. And that's just immunizations. It's not even trauma or being in an ER and having a disaster just have happened to your loved one and having upset loved ones in there. I mean, I just can't imagine the stress that would go along with that day in and day out. So bravo to you for getting through your residency and to your success that you had in that field, but even more bravo to you for making the decision to change career. I mean, I guess it's still in the same field, but just your career shift so that you could spend more time with your family. How did you feel while you were making that? Were you scared to be leaving what you had already been in? It was a scary situation just because if you've been always employed and had a salary guaranteed, uh, this concept of, oh my gosh, you know, I have no guarantee that money will walk in next month and that, you know, you have to deal with so many issues that is related to business, which is not just the financial side, which is scary enough, but to know what it is you have to learn, you know, even that is not clear. And the kind of almost a spiritual transformation you have to have to really ask yourself, who are you? What are you doing? What is your true mission here? Who are your customers and what are you really offering them? And then on top of that, the uh, concept of having to hire, fire people. And so there was a lot of things that I didn't know. And to learn those kind of things when you're 50 is not easy. And also not having anybody who's holding your hand. One good thing about the residency is that although it's uh, really brutal and sometimes completely inhumane, it's well-structured. And there are mentors or people who have gone through before you. There's a chief of the programs or the senior residents and all that. So... They're there to make sure you're not making a blunder or making mistakes and things of that nature. When you're out there being an entrepreneur yourself and have a business that you have to run, you don't know whether you're doing it right or not. There's nobody who's saying, yep, you got A on this or you got C on that or any of that nature. So, yeah, that was um, scary. No question about that. Did you hire a coach at any point along the journey of starting your business? Oh, my goodness. I had many 
programs and coaches and the uh, seminars and webinars and the and any and everywhere I needed to go, I went there. But the ultimately, I had to make a decision whether what they're recommending is correct for me or not. Because sometimes there's conflicting informations. And like, for instance, my practice was in a small town in 140,000 people with average income of about 34,000. And in a town like that, a lot of the marketing concept that there was handed down to me didn't work. Social media? What social media? They weren't into social media <laughs> and email campaign and all that. Some of my patients don't even have email accounts. And in fact, it was actually newspaper, local newspaper that had the best return on investment. And everybody told me newspaper was a bygone <laughs> era thing and nobody should do it. So I learned that I had to test everything out of my location and my audiences to make sure that it's the correct fit. So, yes, I had lots of help. I read hundreds of books and went to many seminars and all that. But in the end, it was always me who had to learn and mature enough to know what was the right thing to do. What was the best mistake that you made and what did you learn from it? Oh, goodness. It was, I think I had the hardest time with the employee issues. I didn't have to deal with that before. And I usually tend to give people lots and lots of chances to prove themselves. And so I would hire people and then have to fire them. <laughs> and, and I didn't really know how to look for people. And at one point, I read, uh, what was the book? I forget the name of it, but it was about the, I think it was like, why? So I had to ask question, why is this person here? Is this a perfect fit? And I realized that I didn't have anybody that was perfect fit for me. So I had to fire them all. I had 11 employees. <laughs> and one by one by one, I went through all of them and nobody made the cut. And so I was down to zero. In fact, actually, I was down to two, but the two of them walked out on me. <laughs> and that was the worst situation because here I was. I'm the owner. I'm the surgeon. I have to run the entire practice by myself. My friends, other plastic surgeons and cosmetic surgeons thought I went completely cuckoo. But after that, I have a team that is completely fit. And I finally understood what the book was saying, that if I have a wrong group of people who's working for me, it didn't matter what I did to encourage them, the group rallies or, or the incentive bonuses and all that. It was all wrong that I had to actually have a perfect fit first for me to build a team. So I think that was the best and the most painful lesson from my practice because from then on, it became so much easier. And also just to know that I'm working with people who are really bored with me that was such a whiff of fresh air because before that I was um, joking that whenever I open my door to the practice, I have like whiff of the estrogen toxicity. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, they were arguing, bickering. I couldn't even say a thing. I asked, like, I bring this thing to my table. And they would say, oh, she hates me. She didn't say hi <laughs> or whatever it was. Oh, boy. <laughs> anyway. It was like having a high school in your office, yeah? Yes, yes. And despite whatever the age, the girls from 20s to the ladies in 60s, it didn't matter. So because I didn't 
screen them properly. I didn't really understand what was the true characteristics that I had to have in my practice. Because unfortunately, in the cosmetic aesthetic practice, there are many people who are drawn to it because it's a frou-frou practice and they get to have lots of uh, freebies or the uh, fringe benefits and don't really understand what is our point. And that our point is to become a psychiatrist with a knife, actually, because we need to find out whoever's coming in to truly listen to what they're saying. Because it's a very vulnerable thing for anybody to walk in and ask them to enhance my look. It's the equivalent to say, I feel so undesirable, in a sense, and then I want you to fix me. And it's very different from going to somebody and say, hey, I got an owie because I banged my finger and fixed that to me. So here they have to bear themselves. So we need to have them be so completely comfortable to do that and trust that, that it is okay for them to do that. When they fail, then that's when people have bad experience and they don't want to look forward and all that. And because it is amazing time to actually utilize these aesthetic procedures because past 15 years or so, we had a huge increase in the researches and development in the laser machines and new products and all that. 20, 30 years ago, you didn't have much option other than getting a surgery or maybe having a really aggressive things like CO2 laser. So now we have many, many different procedures that is very effective and cost efficient and that people can benefit from. But both providers and the patients have to know what is the right thing to do. Oh, definitely. I can see that. Hiring slow and firing fast was definitely one of my favorite mistakes. Because I hired way too fast and it wasn't necessarily that they were the wrong people, but I wasn't prepared to manage everybody. Mm -hmm. And when somebody doesn't do their job, then it would come back to me. So I can imagine, though, you know, having the wrong person at your desk and not making the, the best impression on the patients and not making them feel comfortable and not making them know that they have their best interest in mind, that would be tough. I've seen with some clients that I've worked with, the inner drama just creates havoc all around. It provides a bad client experience or customer experience. The refund rate goes up. It just all goes downhill. And actually, in in the company that my husband's working for right now, it's retail. The employees have created a game, the not it game. Somebody walks in the front door and at first they were touching their nose to say, not it, I'm not taking care of this customer. Like it was a game. But we know the not it game in my house. Actually, it was this is horrible to say. We were doing the not it for who would not be the one changing the poopy diaper. (laughs) (laughs) But the customers may know it too. I mean, you shouldn't walk into a store and see seven employees race to put their finger on their nose. I don't want to help that person. Like they should feel appreciated and welcome. Welcome to the shop. How can we help you? And unfortunately, the um, the owners just, they're not seeing it, first off, because they're not there. They're not aware. And number two, they're not making changes. So sales in that shop are going down. And there's nothing that they can do about it because they're not addressing it. I think as a society, business owner or not, we have to stop being afraid of addressing problems in our life. Yes, absolutely. And it's because having a correct team is a really hard work to learn the expertise to be able to do that and be able to correctly guide them and all that. And often we treat the, our employees 
as if they're um, some commodity that we purchase and then you know hire, fire, that kind of things. And as long as they are viewing this as just a paycheck uh, producing activity, there cannot be any good match there. So I pick people who can be motivated and challenged and have them really, really understand that no matter what, even if you may think that this is temporary things you do, you have to really put your heart and mind to it and you have to be absolutely comfortable and believe in what you do. I mean, some of my employees that I wrongly hired were so disdainful of the aesthetic field. And I'm like, why are you here then? Because you couldn't possibly help people if you think everybody who walks in is seeking vanity. And that's not the case. And so, yeah, it is a lot harder work because despite the fact I read lots of books about employee management and demotivation and all that, it's a skill that's not that easy to learn. It only comes from experiences. Absolutely. I love that you brought that up. I know you're going through a shift in your business right now. You're moving office. What other shifts do you see coming up and what is your ideal vision for where you're going to be headed in the next couple of years? I am trying to have my business scalable, meaning, you know, I'm 56 and I probably don't have that much more than maybe a decade or so left in practice. And I can only take care of one client at a time at this point, right? I cannot operate on more than one person at a time, nor put in, uh, injections on more than one patient at a time. And I feel the kind of lessons I learned during the, my past 10 years of practice here is something that the, many people can benefit from, not just my face-to-face patients. So I'm in the process of actually offering online courses or the uh, group coaching or even personal coaching to help other cosmetic surgeons to start with to learn what is the right thing to do for the people and also trying to teach more of the clients how to seek the appropriate procedures and how to recognize what they're seeking is something that's going to only compensate their lack of self-esteem or something they can benefit from. Because there are many things people can benefit from. They just have to know what is the truth about their request and available procedures. So that's my goal for the next two, three years to venture out to help more people and not just a face-to-face basis. Oh, I love that. If listeners go to your website, which I want you to share in just a moment, can they reach out and connect about your coaching services now? Sure. They can go to my adoniscosmeticsurgery.com and there's the contact us part, but I'll give you my personal email just for your listeners. It's arena, R-I-N-A dot S-H-I-N-N at gmail.com. And Kim, you can put that as a episode note and just mention that they heard me through your interview show here and I'll be happy to answer anybody who might have questions or want to know more about my coaching program. Fabulous. And listeners, you can find Rena's email as well as links to her website on thekimsutton.com forward slash pp394. Rena, thank you so much for joining me on Positive Productivity today. I've really enjoyed our chat. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can share with listeners? 
Yes. If any of your listeners are into business or entrepreneurs, which I think many of them are, there's one thing that I really want everybody to follow because this was golden for me, which is don't scare yourself each day. Because there are many things that pops up that's scary. You look at your bank account and say, whoops, it's negative. Or that you have somebody who's going to sue you or your number one customer left on you. And so many possible negative future outcomes is going to pop into your head. But it hasn't happened yet, right? You're still standing. You're still breathing. You still have food to eat and shelter over your head. So all the things that can happen that's so scary hasn't happened yet. So don't scare yourself. You'd say, I'm going to take care of it when it comes, and I'll just take care of whatever is right here, right now, in my face. So that's my advice. Because a lot of times, all this worst-case scenario that you're fretting over often don't come to fruition. So why should you scare yourself? So that's my advice. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.